0: This issue of Nildesperandum is rated PG for some mild drug references. Nildesperandum 20 Padre by Jennifer Leeper Jennifer Leeper is a freelance writer with 15 years of professional writing experience. Ms. Leeper currently writes creative copy for Living Social and has been published in the Kansas City Star, the Topeka Capital Journal. Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks Magazine, The Pulse Legal Publication, and The Washington Post. Ms. Leeper's first nonfiction publication, Wonder Dad's Kansas City, The Best Dad-Child Activities, Restaurants, Sporting Events, and Unique Adventures for Kansas City Dads, was recently published by Wonder Dads Publishing. Ms. Leeper's first short work of fiction, Murder Brokers, was published by Henhouse Press in August of 2011 as part of a fiction noir collection, and her poem Huck and Jim was published in the summer of 2011 by Grace Notes Publishing. Ms. Leeper is also collaborating on a book entitled Planet Mall, which will be published by ChainBooks.com. Ms. Leeper has an undergraduate degree in journalism from the University of Kansas and currently lives in Seoul, South Korea. This story, Padre, is an excerpt from the novel of the same name by Jennifer Leeper. It will be available from the retailer of your choice in November 2011. Our narrator is John Robinson of the Dark Forest Podcast. Padre by Jennifer
1: Leeper Death stands beside me. It stands near me, like an old prison warden I've known for years. But we've never quite become friends, and at times I even hated this warden. Now, though, there is no hate left in me for my warden. Death is no longer simply a frightening and inevitable destination. But I can see that it is the composite of all the moments that came before this moment, and it completes the necessary whole of my life. My good friend Salvador sits next to me and doesn't weep, and that gives me comfort. Instead, there is a look of peaceful resignation on his brown face. He sits on my right side. His skin gleams with sweat, but not because he is nervous. I am sweating, too, but not because I am fearful or anxious. The sweat is on everything. It's on our bodies and in the air. My lips move and form the same shapes as Salvador's. Our lips move in unison with one another and with the more than one hundred other pairs of lips that speak inaudibly, Hail Mary, full of grace. All of the faces around me are brown, and mine is not. I am not a Tarahumara. My eyes are green. I am not a Ramuri who still lives in the forgotten caves of northern Mexico my hair is the color of a bale of hay i am a catholic priest from new york city salvador is not a tarahumara he is cuban but the dark tint of his flesh helps him to blend in with the tarahumara as my light skin helps me to stand out among them my clothing identifies me i wear a black cassock the women surrounding me wear more colors than all the fields of flowers in the world combined Every imaginable hue strikes a visual chord on handmade skirts and shawls. The men wear white, billowy shirts and matching pants with colorful belts of blue-red and yellow cloth wrapping their waists. The men wear headbands that match their belts, and the women's heads are covered by scarves tied behind their heads or beneath their chins. Each brown face is characterized by the gentle stoicism of this people, Features are strong, chins and noses and foreheads are still and prominent like mountains. They are immovable, but the feet of the Tarahumara are rushing waters, and their legs are carried along in this water like canoes, narrow and swift, and cutting across the earth as they have done for centuries. They wear no shoes. Shoes are not a luxury, but are unnecessary. Even these feet could not outrun death now we all wait we wait for death we each have a warden standing next to us now even the brown-faced children and elderly terahumara wait for death i roll the wooden beads of my rosary through my fingers and i make eye contact with my blessed mother she gazes at me from a side altar to my right She is draped in blue and white her eyes are painted but they reflect what i want to see which is the promise of a peaceful eternity She's surrounded by white adobe. There is so much white in the small chapel that it glows as if it were somehow lit from behind or within. To my left is her son, and his eyes see everything. They see all the moments in my life and all the moments of every other life that was ever thought into existence by the Supreme Creator. The sun is wrapped in ivories, reds, and golds. His arms extend out and upward, exposing the sacred wounds that bleed for every age and every man. They bleed for me. They bleed for Salvador. They bleed for every Tarahumara present in the sanctuary at this moment. In between the son and his blessed mother sits the main altar, made from adobe and arranged in the old style, against the back wall. The altar, painted white, is dressed in golds and whites. A crucifix hangs above the adobe altar. On this cross, the Son of Heaven is offered up as an antidote to the world of mortal men. I don't look behind me, but I visualize the doors to the chapel. They are yellow pine wood and painted red. The wood, like the Tarahumara, is a native of the region. The Tarahumara chose the red paint when they built the church. They painted it red because they said it reminds them of El Sacrificio each time they walk through the doorway. They cut the wood and shaped it to fit inside the entryway. They asked me to paint the wood because I am Padre. The wood is the Tarahumara native. Only Padre can paint the door and it must be painted red, they told me. These doors are closed now, but they won't be for long we wait for five maybe ten maybe twenty men maybe there will be more this time this time will be the last time i can feel it i'm not thinking of these men though i'm thinking of ten years ago My eyes are open, but I must still be dreaming. I see nothing around me that indicates I'm awake. I see nothing familiar. The ceiling over my head is constructed of something relatively primitive. There are roughly cut wood beams and what appears to be dried earth packed between the beams. My skin feels damp and there is a musty odor intensified by the moist air. I sense another human presence. I move my neck which feels stiff and heavy, so I can see this other presence, an old man with dark, black, oriental eyes that see everything, sits and watches me from the end of the bed where I lay. He's a very slight man, and being stooped over by age, even slighter than he would otherwise be. Despite this diminutiveness, there is a natural authority in this man. He has a smooth, shaved, bald head and short white beard and is wrapped in a very colorfully embroidered jacket. He nods slightly at me as I try to lift myself up as if to encourage my decision. My body aches like I have the flu and there is a heaviness in all my limbs. I decide to speak. Where am I? My voice is raspy and I wonder if it is even audible. The old man doesn't respond right away but nods again and communicates, One moment please, with the right index finger. His small figure moves slowly through the strange humid air toward a long wooden table nearby. The table is covered in clay pots in a variety of sizes, and several wooden pipes also varied in size. He returns to the edge of my bed with one of the pipes and asks with his eyes whether I recognize the pipe. I nod. In Chinese, it is known as a pistol. The vaporizer bowl sits on the stem of the opium pipe, and I can hear its distinctive gurgling. I wonder how long I've slept and how much opium I have smoked. So, I'm not dreaming after all. This artifact of my recent history is evidence. The old man pushes the pipe toward me, asking me with his dark brown, nearly black eyes whether I want to smoke more. I shake my head no. "'My venerable host returns the pipe to its table "'and sits down again on a wooden stool at the edge of my bed. "'Without the opium pipe passing between us, "'there's a little to say, and the old man's eyes are quiet. "'Despite the weakness, I maneuver my body into an upright position, "'but as the blood in my body adjusts, I feel dizzy.' my host gets up and shuffles to another wooden table covered in more opium pipes and ceramic bowls and he returns with a metal cup full of a translucent white liquid his eyes ask me to drink it i don't know what is in the cup but i have a feeling it will either prevent withdrawal symptoms or at least mitigate them so i take the handle of the cup and nod with gratitude The drink is bitter and has the taste of sour vegetation, but I drink all of it, hoping it will prove to be the natural medicinal I suspect it is. As I drink, I recall how I came to be here. It all began in Tokyo. My three colleagues and I were well-positioned to take over the international advertising and marketing efforts for a high-profile Japanese technology firm. It came off beautifully. Four alchemy advertising executives from New York City congratulated themselves with a celebratory dinner of caterpillar rolls and sake. I should have felt victorious. I should have reveled in the fruits of my toil. The other three certainly did. They ate, drank, sang, bad karaoke, and returned to our hotel in Tokyo. I ate, drank, and never returned to my hotel room. Instead... I wandered around Tokyo. I drank more. For the first time in years, there was no euphoria. Something was different this time. I wanted to drink, not to increase that buoyancy of body and mind that typically followed a momentous achievement, but I wanted to drink until one thought was indistinguishable from another. I wanted to be consumed by the dulling warmth of sake. I wanted to forget the past eight years of total and unimpeded devotion to a job I suddenly cared nothing about the futility of these past eight years now dug into me with claws i stumbled from one bar to another the lights and color of Tokyo absorbed me as much as the alcohol and i allowed it i only wanted to feel the weightless and easy sensations i wanted to live in that state of mind and body forever and i tried to I had my passport with me and enough currency to enjoy the delights of Singapore, Hong Kong, and Thailand, where I now find myself in the Northern Hill Country, recovering from a multiple-day opium binge in a Hmong village. I'm not out of money because my host has offered me another pipe. I reach behind myself and touch my jeans pocket, and I feel a small, flat bulge confirming my presumption. The bulge has dwindled significantly from the rubber-banded roll I began with in Tokyo. I return the metal cup to my host and nod my thanks. My host returns the cup to the second wooden table covered in pipes. Even though there is still the bulge in my pocket, I know I'll need it to get back to Bangkok. Bangkok is not a final destination, but a destination. I cannot stay here forever. There's a raggedy map of Thailand hanging on the wall. I point at the map and my host understands. To be certain of my intentions, my host shuffles over to the map and points at Bangkok, questioning his choice with his eyes. I nod. I wonder how many times my host has pointed at the faded red circle that represents Bangkok. My host holds up a finger again, indicating, One moment, please, and vanishes outside of the hut. Next to the map, I pointed at, hangs a small square mirror. I lean over until I am nearly falling off my bed and catch my reflection. I've lost weight and I desperately need a shave. Coarse black stubble covers my chin, lower cheeks, and upper lip. There are dark circles underneath my blue eyes and my thick black hair rises like wind surf from my head. I run a hand through the surf attempting to subdue it. My host returns with a much younger Hmong villager. My host's eyes ask me if I can get up and walk. I nod. I'm weak, but the weakness is superficial and easily overcome. I make it to my feet, though my legs are still soft from their recent inactivity. My host brings me more of the translucent white beverage as I gather my passport, wallet, and a handful of coins. I'm wearing the same clothing I wore when I began my aimless hedonism in Tokyo. I need a shower. At least there is no stench of urine or anything worse. I show my gratitude to my host. His eyes thank me for the unexpected currency in his palm. The younger Hmong also speaks to me with his eyes, which ask if I'm ready to go. I nod. My head aches and my legs are mushy, but I need to move. I need to be somewhere else now. I follow my new young companion through his village. The air is thick with Thai summer. Everything living perspires and bleeds sweat. There's a constant sweatiness to everything there's a writhing discomfort in everything but there is also a lifeless resignation to the heat which reigns imperialistically i twitch inside of myself in the red tie heat i'm not sure what time it is but the day doesn't feel new in this stagnant heat bearing down on everything i follow my guide through the winding dirt roads of the village which rise and fall at the whim of the local topography i don't speak any thai so i can only follow the young hmong man wrapped in the colorful textiles of his tribe before i left singapore i met an australian in a street cafe who told me stories of the hmong and how they once were great cultivators of the opium poppy this man as aimless in his ultimate pursuit as i had spent time with the hmong hill tribe nearly three decades ago as an opium farmer himself He said he admired the Thai Hmong and remained with them longer than he had ever remained with any person or people. He talked about the eloquence of their needlepoint and their animistic religion and how they managed to thrive despite being displaced by the Chinese through many wars and splintered among Laos, Thailand, and Vietnam. They are more tree than human, the Australian said. They can be uprooted, but they take their roots with them wherever they go he told me, between sips of Te tarik, There are many more soft rises and falls of the earth and many tourist stalls to put behind us before we reach a bus terminal where my young guide's eyes tell me I will find transportation to Bangkok. I place coins in the young man's hand and watch him become absorbed back into the thick green vegetation that grows thickly all over the north of this country." i purchase a bus ticket and find a wooden bench outside the terminal where i wait in the thick heat my thoughts expand lazily into the territory of my recent past i wonder whether my colleagues even looked very hard to find me after i disappeared i would have been long gone by the time they all awoke the next morning they would have all returned home to the states after a day or two of dumbfounded searching Probably they would have checked in at the U.S. Embassy in Japan, but when nothing materialized, they would have retreated to their home country, to the comfort and reassurance of familiar surroundings. What would they have said to Mo, Mo Pletz, the advertising manager with the sad, droopy eyes and graying, disheveled hair and clothing who chain-smoked and drank black coffee out of a styrofoam cup, and who more closely resembled a newsroom editor circa 1981? Upon hearing of my abrupt disappearance, Mo would have excused himself to smoke a cigarette. The cigarette would have calmed his nerves. He would have returned to the 28th floor of the Alchemy Advertising Building with a nicotine-fueled resolve. My advertising campaigns would have been reassigned to my colleagues, and the matter of my whereabouts would be reassigned to the past. I know Mo too well. He will not tread water. He will swim on my three colleagues who eight years ago were easily distinguished by individual aspirations now ran together like watercolors we all started at alchemy right out of college six months ago i ceased thinking of them as three separate units they all live within a few blocks of one another in the upper east side averaging two offspring apiece and all summering in nantucket at the same bed and breakfast i had no wife or children and i spent summers working longer hours at the office Eventually, my office will be packed up and any evidence of my time at Alchemy will be expunged. I will be edited out of Alchemy like flat ad copy. Mo will hire my replacement, my co-workers will continue summering together, and I will precipitate in their lives only as an anecdote as the months and years pass. My apartment will be leased to someone else after my lease terminates with no one to renew it. The contents of my apartment will be sold at an impersonal auction. My parents are dead and there are no close friends, but only recreational acquaintances, so no one will pursue my whereabouts beyond a fleeting curiosity. And no one will find me anyway because I don't want to be found. In one moment, on a busy street in Tokyo, I discarded my entire life. The itchy sting of the wet heat crawls along my skin as I rejoin my physical surroundings. Buses arrive from and depart to other destinations around Thailand. Old and young bodies visibly sigh as they leave their air-conditioned terminal interior to wait for their buses. Most are Thai, but here and there are faces that look more like mine. A little girl, a few shades darker than me, clutching at her mother's hand. Her large brown eyes clutching at me reminds me of my current physical appearance i self-consciously run a hand through my wild hair i need a shower i haven't had a shower since singapore i probably need to eat too and i need to get to a quiet hotel room in bangkok where i can suffer any opium withdrawal symptoms in relative peace and quiet the whitish tea-like liquid that i drank earlier couldn't possibly prevent the inevitable quake of opium sickness could it the train to bangkok arrives ten hours to bangkok at least there is air conditioning on the bus and there is a bathroom in case i do suffer any withdrawal symptoms my bus is full mostly with locals there are a few europeans leaving me as the only american i settle into my seat and try to sleep i dream of my childhood my parents are still alive in these dreams and i hear my mother's ancient voice calling russ Russell." as I lingered in the dusk of California evenings with neighborhood kids on bike and skateboards. Her voice is remote now as any other voice erased from time. My father stands behind my mother like a shadow. He's a quiet strength. My mother was a tiny golden creature with long blonde hair, always piled in a bun on top of her head. My father was dark and tall. He was immovable. Vic and Marin Capshaw traveled the world together, digging in the earth of Africa and Europe for answers to archaeological questions. They died in a car accident three days following my college graduation. They were traveling to see my new apartment in Brooklyn. I wake to the sound of the squeaky wheels of a beverage and snack cart patrolling the aisle for hungry passengers. My stomach gurgles in response. I order a soda and a small sandwich. The bus quietly buzzes with the lowered tones of intimate conversation. I check my watch, discovering I've been asleep for three hours. The day has quickly matured toward early evening. With my hunger sated and no sign of withdrawal symptoms, I lazily watch Thailand pass by outside my window. Now and again the hills and vegetation open up to scenes of floating market vendors selling produce and other goods to tourists and locals gathered at the edges of lakes waterfalls cascade down rocky hillsides here and there traditional thai houses on stilts built along the perimeters of lakes and rivers appear i sleep again this time for a couple of hours and wake to opaque darkness outside my window a bus is still except for intermittent snoring and now whispered conversation i use the bathroom and still there are no signs of sickness perhaps i've evaded this beast I don't deserve this evasion. I deserve the full onslaught of civil war within my own body. Where will I go after Bangkok? I purge one name from my mind in response to this question. Damien Capshaw, my father's brother, whom I haven't seen since my parents' funeral, lives just outside of Galway in Ireland. He moved there after his wife died from breast cancer 15 years ago. He was an investment broker in Chicago and stocked away a tidy sum for an early and leisurely retirement. Now, I move to go visit him. He'll be surprised to see me. The last I heard, he had a large vegetable garden and a book club to occupy his time. Bangkok arrives in a trance of color and light, corrupting the darkness, outside my window. A taxi delivers me to a hotel in the heart of the city. I easily pass into slumber and visions of Ireland and Uncle Damien are my nocturnal companions inside my hotel room the morning is not wholly sealed off from the noise of the city muffled horns express the frustration of rush hour drivers in the clogged streets of bangkok motorcycles growl with impatience as they sit in traffic the smell of food being prepared by outdoor market merchants permeates even the walls of my room i shower and change back into my dirty clothing My first goal of the morning will be to buy a change of fresh clothes. The hotel concierge directs me to a clothing shop within walking distance. I change into a new shirt and pants inside the store. I also buy a razor, shaving cream, toothbrush, toothpaste, toiletry bag, and a suitcase. I purchase a plane ticket to Dublin for a 15-hour red-eye flight tonight. I spend the remainder of my day visiting outdoor marketplaces where familiar and unfamiliar sights and smells converge. Vendors sell everything from carved wooden gods to fish. I speak no Thai and can only nod and gesture when I want to buy something. As I wind through the network of market stalls, another day burns out in a glorious sunset over Bangkok. I hail a cab to Suvarnabhumi Airport. As I board the plane to Dublin, I wonder whether I should warn my uncle I'm coming for a visit. I'll call him in Dublin. If he doesn't want to see me, no loss. I'll be in Ireland. I've never seen Ireland, and at least it's not Manhattan. I ease into my first-class seat, thankful for my untouched overseas credit line. I order a whiskey on the rocks. I'm alone in my row of two seats. The lights dim. The whole world seems to dim. A movie I've seen before starts playing. Still, there are no withdrawal symptoms. I fall asleep, dreaming of my uncle's Irish cottage, which I've never seen before. He lives on a cliff by the ocean, and he grows potatoes, tomatoes, and onions. Other than the ocean, he's surrounded by green, as vast as the blue of the sea. I wake to the warmth of sunlight on my face. An attendant offers me a hot towel, and I press it against my eyes and neck. Then the diarrhea finally arrives. It takes hold of my body, dictating my every thought and action. After two trips to the lavatory, I ask the attendant for an anti-diarrheal tablet. I consume several glasses of water, and wearied by dehydration, I fall asleep for a few hours. I wear a coating of sweat when I wake. My body aches and cramps have settled into my stomach, and I need to vomit. I make it to the bathroom and expel my insides as soon as my knees hit the floor. I'm shaking when I'm finished, but I make it back to my seat. Even though I'm nauseated, I know I need to stop my body from shaking, so I order a scotch on the rocks. The alcohol subdues my heart rate. I request more antidiarrheal tablets. I don't fall asleep for the remainder of the trip. Dublin arrives. The plane skitters to a hard stop on the runway. My uncle lives on the rural outskirts of a town called Naas, which sits between Dublin and Cork. My parents always talked of my uncle Damien as having an acreage, but that could be 20 or 200 acres. Even in the year 2002, I refuse a cell phone, so I search for a public phone in the Dublin airport. Luckily, they still seem to be relatively ubiquitous in the UK. I call information and ask for Damien Capshaw's number. I hang up but don't call my uncle right away. I realize I can't face my uncle who I haven't seen in a decade in my physical state. I need to be assured that the worst of my opium sickness is gone before I see him. I find a taxi and ask to be taken to the nearest hospital, which is in Dublin. I'm admitted for opium withdrawal. I've never been chemically detoxed. My only knowledge of the effects of opium came from a 19th century journal scribed by a wealthy Londoner, who heavily patronized the opium dens of Beijing. The journal contained descriptions of kaleidoscopic hallucinations, which are more fantastical than helpful in my current situation. For four days and three nights, my vital signs are monitored and chemically adjusted by three different nurses with thick brogues. During the day... I attend classes about the effects of various drugs on the nervous system and group therapy sessions where some people cry, others get angry, and I, the lone American, cannot help my singular fascination with the strange juxtaposition of myself and all of it. To pass the rest of the time, I play cards with addicts who stream in from Dublin and surrounding towns like Bray, Killini, and Dalkey. At night, sleep is forced by sedatives, and I am awakened at least twice a night for pulse-taking by mysterious Celtic murmurings that conjure up exotic images of green-glowing fairies and banshees. My body mended, and on the promise to an assigned drug counselor that I will attend daily NA meetings, I'm released back into the world, where I immediately locate a payphone. I dial my uncle's number. I wonder how much Damien Capshaw will remind me of my parents. The phone rings once, Twice. Hello? I'm half surprised my uncle answers the phone. I picture him outside all day, every day in a garden, inaccessible through technology. Uncle Damien? It's Russ. I'm here in Ireland. I'm in Dublin. Russ? Dublin? When did you get in? It's good to hear from you. His voice is my father's vocal twin. Its resonant baritone is weighted equally with joy and sadness. It represents strength to me. I just got in today. I lie to my own blood. I finished up with a job in Tokyo and thought I would take some time off, so here I am. Would you mind a visit? Of course not. I haven't seen my nephew in... it's been at least ten years, right? I can come pick you up. Just finishing up some weeding here. Sure, I'd appreciate it. I'll wait outside the airport for you. I'm leaving now. I'll see you. And I'll be driving a red Alfa Romeo. The conversation was so casual, it should have been more formal than... "'I'm leaving now. I'll see you soon.' "'I return to the airport in a cab and wait at the curb. "'And when the sleek red auto finds me at the curb at last "'and my Uncle Spryly jumps out to get a look at me, "'I see myself in this old man. "'My father's older brother has the same thick wild hair, "'though his is completely white, "'and mine is still mostly nearly black. "'His build and gait are still athletic for his 75 years. "'He's not stooped or shrunken at all by age.' His face, though wrinkled, has not obscured the youthfulness of his blue eyes. He hugs me with masculine affection, patting me firmly on my back as he embraces me. I reciprocate. You look tired, Russ, but then I haven't seen you in ten years. Ten years can wear a man out. It's good to see you, boy. I smile. Michael's eyes are a little sad and wistful. Perhaps they see my father as I see my father standing in front of me. I'm tired. Had a big job in Tokyo. Still in advertising, then? Yes, but that's going to change. I hesitate in saying too much, but what's saying too much at this strange juncture? I've departed from all things familiar, and there is no pattern for my thoughts or actions anymore. I've decided to leave my job. My uncle's eyes study me more intently. He nods his head and smiles. He understands, and he would understand with everything that's happened to him you need a change. Sometimes a man just needs a change. I nod, and my uncle slaps me lightly on the back. Let's get out of here and get back to the ranch, where it's more comfortable to talk. I throw my suitcase in the back seat of my uncle's restored 69 Romeo, and we pull off into the streets of Dublin, naturally finding a rhythm of conversation. We talk about my mother and father, and of Lucy, my uncle's wife, who he still calls his soulmate. He's never remarried, "'Lucy's ashes are buried on his land outside Nas. "'I shouldn't have cremated my girl. "'Wasn't the Catholic thing to do, but at the time I didn't know any better,' "'my uncle says with regret in his voice. "'I flinch at my uncle using the phrase, Catholic thing to do. "'I haven't heard Catholicism mentioned in my family in any serious context "'since I was a very small child when my parents still attended Mass on Christmas and Easter.' I was baptized, but never even received First Communion, so I was essentially raised without a faith beyond the age of five or six. I go to daily Mass. There's a little church in Nass, an old stone church. Everything in Ireland is an old ruin or brand new, or at least that's the way it seems to me. I love it. I love the contrast of the very old and the very new. I didn't know you still went to Mass after all these years. Well, not still, but after all these years, I'm going to Mass. My uncle smiles. Your dad knew I came back to the faith after Lucy died. He accepted it like a person accepts a dental cleaning. He was practical, your father. He saw it as necessary for me, but not for him or your mother. I marvel at the man next to me. I feel like I'm seeing him for the first time. What brought you back to the church? My uncle's eyes are wet as he responds. After my Lucy passed, I got to thinking about my own mortality. I moved here. I met an old priest at a pub in town. I started meeting with the priest every week at this pub, and we talked about Lucy and how I fell away from the church on my own, not because of her and her atheism. I told this priest how Lucy, on the day she died, asked me why I left the church and stopped going to Mass. And my uncle's voice catches. He clears his throat and wipes his eyes. And she told me I should go to Mass again. I don't know why she said this, but to this day, I believe that my Lucy, the atheist, brought me back to my faith. My uncle's eyes glisten. God has the best sense of humor. Mom and Dad never told me any of that. My uncle smiles, his blue eyes shining. They wouldn't have. I didn't meet the priest at the pub here until a month after they died. It took me that long to follow through with what my Lucy asked of me. We both smile the same inherited smile. We are quiet during the remainder of the trip back to my uncle's home. I wonder if I should tell him about my recent excesses and my erratic departure from my carefully constructed reality. I watch the island of poets and potato farmers roll by outside my window. It is both a rugged and whimsical land all at once. The greenness of the land cannot be exaggerated by the imagination. It's like an old cloak... Tattered in some places, worn proudly by this country, for as long as only the soil here can recall, I surmise I I
2: sell my rock. I sell my ring, I sell my-
0: If you have enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to leave a donation and a comment. And if you've enjoyed this story in particular, please be sure to visit the book retailer of your choice to purchase the novel Padre by Jennifer Leeper starting in November 2011. *Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no-derivatives license. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. Audio production in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. Engineer Hugh Morrison and executive producer Charles McFall.
2: let